Camera testing is one thing that all reviewers have in common, but where does one go to take your camera samples? To find out, I've got one of the best in the business to talk about it. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're pulling back the curtain twice on you. The first one has to do with this show because I wanted to clear the air about something. You might have a misconception about my attitude on this show, and I just want to set the record straight and make sure that we're all on the same page. Then, as a reviewer, I often have to put myself in the position of evaluating a camera on a phone by putting myself in very unfortunate circumstances in terms of photography. So I wanted to talk to one of the masters at the craft. Michael Fisher joins me for a peek behind the curtain as we talk about phone reviews, but more importantly, about camera reviews. And we will get to all of that, but first, as always, we have to get to the news of the week. Amazon is an ungodly huge company that has hundreds of thousands of employees all around the globe. Now, with the pandemic maybe kind of possibly coming to a close-ish, decisions have to be made about returning to the office and credit where it's due, Amazon is actually making a lot of sense here. Instead of issuing a blanket policy to everyone, Amazon is letting team leaders decide what the return to the office will look like. It might remain remote, it might be three days a week, it might be all five, but it's up to the individual teams to decide how comfortable they are and how they can work together the best. And I have to say, Good for you, Amazon. Having been a cubicle smurf who worked for a soulless corporation of tens of thousands of employees, I can attest it's very easy for a company to just issue a blanket policy and let HR deal with the fallout. That actually solves a lot of problems like employees whining that Billy's team gets to work remotely. Why can't our team work remotely? And the correct answer to that criticism is shut the hell up and go back to your hole, clown. So really, good for you, Amazon, for taking the bold stance. And team leaders, good luck with all your whining direct reports. I'm sure they won't be at all annoying. The latest James Bond movie, Die Today, Another Time for Tomorrow, or whatever it's called, came out recently. And to celebrate, Digital Trends put together a list of the top 20 gadgets that 007 used over the years, including cigarette rockets, exploding toothpaste, and ski pole guns. It's a fun little reminder that basically anything can be turned deadly once you put Hollywood's mind to it. Anyway, this is a fun little roundup piece and I thought you might like it. Personally, while the alligator submarine checks a lot of boxes for me, my personal favorite has to be the bagpipes that turn into a flamethrower and a machine gun. I mean, it's not because there are actual bagpipes out there that are actual flamethrowers. Just trust me, Google it. It's actually rather spectacular. Of course, according to the article, Bond never used the bagpipes, which is really just a shame. Maybe there will be another Bond movie that we could rectify that. We all like to think that police officers have the general public's best interest at heart, protect and serve and all that, but as it turns out, police officers in 2021 
are getting a bit lazy when it comes to trying to figure out who is going out there and doing all the crime. Forbes reported this week that investigators in a human trafficking case used a warrant to try to get Google to release the names of anyone who searched for specific search terms. The warrant was supposed to be a secret, but whoopsie, it's out there now and just yikes town population everyone. So rather than try to track down who may have, you know, actually taken someone and smuggled them into slavery, the cops thought it would be a good idea to ask Google who has searched for how long can 60 people survive in a shipping container, and sure, it's a fair to guess that anyone who Googles that probably is not doing research for a book, but there remains the possibility that whoever Googled that is just doing research for a book and probably doesn't deserve to be hauled in for questioning. Besides, Everyone knows if there's something you're going to search for that you don't want anyone else to know about, you use Bing. This is not hard, people. But in the meantime, watch out what you Google, or at least prepare a convincing story and have your lawyer on speed dial. Speaking of Google, I've been using a ton of Google apps on iOS lately because it's time to review the iPhone, but it turns out some folks are not enjoying the Google experience on iOS, calling the app design a bit off compared to other iOS apps. Google announced this week that it's going to be redesigning its apps to feel more like iOS apps, which I guess is a thing? I don't know. I use Google Apps just fine on iOS, and they don't bother me, but that's probably just because using iOS always feels a little off to me. So, look, I don't regret using iOS six months out of the year. It's like having the other team's playbook, but I definitely prefer Android for most things. So, what will the changes look like? Largely, they're going to be very subtle, like uh, slightly more rounded buttons, changes in banners, stuff like that. The problem is that Google's UI and Apple's UI are very different animals, so this is going to be something of a process. In the end, will it be worth it? I guess that's for Google's design team and, I guess, iOS users, too, to decide. As a frequent user of Google Apps on iOS, I'm looking forward to seeing what the changes look like. This podcast has a long, deep, abiding love for the company Palm due to its introduction of WebOS. So, since the demise of Palm, we've been watching with bated breath to see what Palm would do next. Unfortunately, that thing it would do next was the Palm phone, a secondary tiny phone that was so tiny it was hard to use, so you spent less time on your phone, and is that necessarily a good thing? Not really. Well, Palm is taking another crack at making a comeback, teasing what looks like true wireless earbuds and announcing that something will happen on October 26th. I mean, I guess it's fine, but it's not like there's not already a ton of true wireless earbuds out there, so I'm not really sure what Palm's endgame is here. Are they trying to ape nothing? That's probably not an awesome strategy, but I suppose if it ends up that we get another phone at some point, that'll be nice, even though it won't really be Palm, and that just makes me sad. So overall, these earbuds, whatever they are, just make me sad. Anchor launched a new Soundcore product this week in the form of Soundcore Frames. These are glasses with surround sound headphones in them for around $200. And my problem with these is the same problem that I've had with every other sound glasses, headphone products, whatever you want to call them. 
What happens when you need to take them off? The only real way that glasses like these work is if you have something like transition lenses in them that go clear when it's dark out, but darken when the sun is out. Anchor says that that's possible, and you can even put your own lenses into them, which I guess is nice, but I'm just not convinced. At $200, they're not badly priced, so I can respect that, and to be honest, if I were going out for a day of sunshine and relaxing, maybe a long bike ride, something like that, these would be pretty sweet. But then again, this opinion comes without ever having had the chance to use these for reals, and I hope that this is something that Anchor can help me out with. So it's very possible a review of these will be coming down the pipeline, but it's not definitive yet. I'm still hopeful. OnePlus launched a new phone this week called the OnePlus 9 Retweet, or OnePlus 9 RT. This is a follow-up to the OnePlus 9R from earlier this year. It has some awesome-looking specs with a Snapdragon 888 processor, 8 to 12 gigabytes of RAM, and 128 to 256 gigabytes of storage. There's also a 6.62-inch, 120Hz OLED display, 4,500 mAh battery, and 65-watt charging, which is able to top you off in 20 minutes, assuming, of course, your battery survives. This phone is to be released in China at first, with no word on wider availability. The price starts at around $600, which is very not bad. There's also a 15-megapixel camera on the back, along with a 16-megapixel wide-angle camera, both of which should be good performers if the OnePlus 9 Pro is any indication. But again, this is only in China, so you'll probably never get to buy it. So you know how you'll tell Android not to send any data anywhere and Android's all like, yeah, no problemo, I got you. Then you go about your day confident that you have complete control over your data, right? Well, a team of researchers from the University of Edinburgh and Trinity College Dublin have discovered that, yeah, that's not really the case. I mean, it's nice that the Irish and the Scots can work together sometimes, but the researchers looked at Android skins from Samsung, Xiaomi, Realme, Huawei, Lineage OS, and E, and it turns out every operating system just goes ahead and sends data along anyway, even when it's idle. Not cool, people. Various companies report back to their home companies like Microsoft, Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, stuff like that. And this is a quote from the article. Quote, Huawei in particular goes as far as to send the timing and duration of every app window viewed by the user. Yikes, bro. Let it be known that Huawei knows you like porn. If you're a privacy person, E seems to be your best bet, even though that even sends a little bit of data back as well. All the same, if you're on Android, you can pretty much kiss your privacy goodbye. I don't think this is going to come as a huge surprise to people. But all the same, it's still a little creepy. And finally, Microsoft was super proud of its Windows 11 release, mentioning how they ironed out every little detail and every little part of their brand new operating system, and they screwed something up, didn't they? Yes, they did. In Microsoft Paint, if you click on the file menu, there is a button that says from scanner or camera, which in and of itself isn't really all that clear. Microsoft is referring to importing an image from the scanner or camera camera, but the button doesn't say scanner, it says scan -er. There's an extra N in there. <laughs> Whoops. Further down the menu, if you click on settings, you actually get the About Microsoft Paint dialog, so the About button is actually completely mislabeled as a settings button, so 
whoopsie part two, I guess. So if there's anything that we've learned from this, it's that the Microsoft Paint team is basically just phoning it in, and I can't even remember the last time I used Paint except to open it and find these errors. In fact, Paint is such a little-used program, I'm kind of surprised anyone noticed, and frankly, Microsoft was probably a little surprised as well. Backend application API bugs attachment DevOps backend frameworks backward compiler orient natural language software blue text editor bookmark Boolean web server welcome to Tech Yeah. Since the theme of this show is pulling back the curtain, I thought I'd take a moment to talk about some of the gear that I use behind the scenes when photographing and shooting video. And this is four different items that I use all together, and most of them come from a company called Newer who makes photography gear, and I feel the need to preface the gear by telling you that when I say Newer, I mean the company Newer. I'm not referring to the fact that the gear is more new than something else. Aren't audio podcasts fun? Anyway, the gear is a newer 5-in-1 collapsible oval reflector, Amazon Basics light stands, newer Photo Studio metal clips, and finally, newer sandbags. And I'll get to all of these and what they do. First, and I'd say the highlight of this particular tech, yeah, is the newer collapsible reflector. This is basically what it sounds like. It's an oval reflector measuring 31 inches by 47 inches in a rounded rectangle shape. The frame of the reflector is a thin steel that, when bent, snaps back into place. So you can collapse this down to about a 12-inch circle when you're moving it around or packing it away. The inside of the reflector is a translucent light diffuser inside a zip up case that contains a silver reflector, gold reflector, black and white side, hence the name 5-in-1. Now, I'm not going to go into how all these things can help you with lighting. There are entire podcasts and YouTube channels dedicated to that. But I have found that this reflector slash diffuser is a great size for most of my applications. There are larger ones and there are smaller ones available, but I personally like this size. Now, the light stands and clamps and sandbags should be fairly obvious as to what they're for, but in the interest of not making any assumptions, I'm a one-man operation, so I don't always have someone to hold my reflector up when I'm shooting. The light stands and clamps can hold the reflector basically anywhere I need it to be. The light stands get as tall as 8.5 feet tall, and the clamps can be maneuvered in basically any direction you need. The sandbags... I learned the hard way, are for weighing down the base of the sand so that they don't tip over or blow over in the wind. The sandbags don't come with the sand. Home Depot will solve that problem for you for about four bucks. But overall, this combination of equipment gets me by on a daily basis. So if you're interested in getting into photography, this is a pretty decent set of gear to pick up that overall should cost you right around $100 or so, give or take. And they all come highly recommended by me, who is an admittedly crappy photographer. But I dig the gear, and it has helped me, so maybe it can help you too. As always, there's a link in the show notes and at benefitofadow.com, and if you pick something up, you'll be helping out the show, and you'll have my thanks. But for now, let's get back to the show. (laughs) 
One story that I read this week has to do with Tesla's self-driving beta and the disclaimers that users have to sign in order to receive the beta. This is actually going to be a news item, but I wanted to address something in this story that would take longer than a couple of minutes, so I hope you'll bear with me. First, let's get to the news story itself. Vice reports that users of Tesla's full self-driving beta have to sign a sort of agreement in order to receive the beta. The agreement is the typical, you must remain attentive at all times, yada yada, we've heard about that in the past. But the agreement also limits what users can post on social media, and one line of this agreement stood out to me. It says, quote, do remember that there are a lot of people that want Tesla to fail. And suddenly it occurred to me that if this show were more popular, and if Tesla actually bothered to listen to it, I might be one of the air quotes people that Tesla is referring to. And here's the thing. That is absolutely 100% not the case at all. And if you're staring at your phone right now with a quizzical look on your face like a dog that just heard a weird noise, I wouldn't be surprised, which is why I feel like I need to explain this. I love technology. I love, love, love technology. And I love that we are living in the time that we are living in right now. This is a genuinely exciting time to be alive. I can put a camera 400 feet in the sky and see what my neighborhood looks like. I can get a lunch delivery from a robot. I can tell an app what groceries I want and have them put in my car. And in some cases, I can even ride in a car with no driver in it. This is all amazing stuff, and it's wonderful. But a lot of my show and a lot of my humor of my show seems negative. I'm critical, and I point out flaws in what companies say or do. I criticize Elon Musk for putting autopilot in a car. I make fun of folding phones that crack down the middle for no reason. I make fun of Jeff Bezos' space stick, and to be honest, all of those things are really, really cool. Well, okay, this, except for the space stick thing. I, I'm actually really just making fun of that. But I'm critical of these companies and these technologies because I'm such a huge, huge fan of them. And this is very similar to how I view my favorite sports teams. I love the Chicago Cubs so much that I can't stop ridiculing them when they suck. And by the way, They suck a lot. But the reason I ridicule them is because I want them to be better, and I so desperately want them to be better. And the same goes for technology. I want every phone to be the perfect phone. I want every product to be a perfect product, because I usually only review products on here that are cool in some way. And that coolness can be, you know, in theory, or it can be in practice. Like, I've reviewed a few items that had some really good ideas, but poor execution. And I've reviewed some products that sound really stupid, but turn out to be lifesavers. The point is, I very much want everything that I look at to be awesome, but inevitably, everything has flaws, and as a reviewer, It's my job to point out those flaws. Similarly in news, every company has flaws. Some, like Facebook, are basically one giant flaw from the start. Others, like Microsoft or Google, get a lot of things wrong, but also get a lot of things right. The point is, I'm a fan of technology and I love it. I love every part of it. Except for, you know, facial recognition that's used to invade privacy. That's not a winner. But most everything else, I love it. And I want it to be great. So let's circle back to Tesla here. Autopilot. I want autopilot in every car I drive for the rest of my life. But I don't want it to be called autopilot because it's just 
not. It's a case of brilliant and stupid marketing all at once because, you know, there's no such thing as bad press, then it's just brilliant. But it should not be called autopilot at all, ever. It's not autopilot. It's more like helper probably pilot. And that doesn't mean I want Tesla to fail. I never want any kind of technology to fail, especially when it's in the hands of normals. That's going to ruin somebody's day, so I will never root for that to happen. Rather, I'm going to do my job as a technology expert and point out flaws where they are, because trust me, they're everywhere. And part of being a reviewer means that you have to point out flaws despite the negative connotations. So I am not, in fact, one of those people rooting for Tesla to fail. I very much want Tesla to succeed. But you can bet if Tesla, Google, Amazon, Facebook, especially Facebook, drops the ball, I'm going to be here to tell you about that, too, because at the end of the day, that's my job. I once commented to my co-producer Cliff that when you're evaluating a camera, in a sense you're intentionally going places that you think the camera probably won't perform well, whether it's at night in a bar or facing the sunshine head-on. In order to test a camera, you need to test its limits. So I wanted to know, where do you go to push those limits? And what better person to ask than someone who tests a few dozen phones per year, Michael Fisher. Michael, welcome to the show. And I'm going to pretend I didn't just say that 45 minutes ago. Adam, it's nice to be on the show. It's been a very long time. <laughs> it has. So uh, the reason I wanted to talk about this was because, you know, when you're when you're evaluating the camera on a phone, you often have to put yourself into situations like, you know, a lot of the commentary around cameras and phones is, you know, low light situations and HDR. And, you know, it's, it's situations where you're like almost pleasantly surprised at this photo didn't turn out like crap so like i i just think it's kind of funny that as reviewers we constantly put ourselves in those positions to test you know various cameras in those situations and so like i don't really want to get into the why so much or the how i just i'm curious as to like where you go like you know where do you do you intentionally go to a bar once a month so you can test a low light camera or do you intentionally go to the park every you know i'm like what where what's your what's do you have do you have a prescribed list of places that you will visit in order to get a good template you have stumbled upon uh, an interesting reality about reviewing devices and about okay. the art form of reviewing. And that is that sometimes testing bears little resemblance to uh, useful testing. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. <laughs> if you want to test a camera, you know, you want to test anything. Uh, I have seen, I've been privileged to see some of the testing facilities at reviewed.com. They were based mm. very near me where I used to live. And, um, you know, you have the same 18 or 24 little objects in a studio where you can control the light. Mm-hmm. And um, you have some images you hang on the wall. You have some test graphs. And the whole, you know, conceit is that if you can objectively 
line up every phone there is or every phone you want to cover, photograph the exact same things under the exact same conditions, then you can give an opinion. You can give an informed piece of buying advice. Absolutely. Um, that is not... And then there's us. And then there's... Right, right. And, <laughs> you know, that is something I think I maybe tried to do a handful of times 10 years ago. Um, but I very quickly learned, or not so quickly, but I, I eventually learned, that it is possible to evaluate a camera's performance um, to a much lower degree of effectiveness, admittedly, by going to different settings every time uh, and... <laughs> Maintaining as strong a memory as possible about its competitors, maintaining as large a database as possible, again, in your head or, or otherwise, mm -hmm. about how other modern phones perform in similar situations. And the only way to do that for me is but by using every top shelf phone or every phone I review as often as possible. So right behind the computer here, I have just, you know, 18 of these things. And I routinely take them around and compare them side by side in different situations. But really, look, if you want that objective data, you go to a site like reviewed.com. You go to, you know, I, I don't know. You pick a name. There are a ton of sites yeah. do this, right? Sure. Um, and it, it's, it's not that I don't, it's not that I devalue that. It's just that I... We don't do that. We, we do entertainment, uh, or at least I do. I do entertainment that where I'm still giving you data and I'm still hopefully giving you useful data, but I'm not giving yeah. you lab-tested things. Um, much of my reviews are subjective interpretations, and I think that one of the keys to building an audience is building an audience who understands that and likes you because your opinions tend to jive with the data they're looking for. Yeah. Okay. So and, and so yeah. it, it's an entertainment thing more than anything else. And so I pick venues based on where would you like to go with this phone, maybe. And if I can't do that, well, where would you like to go with me on a trip? Because I'm going to take a trip. Credit to David Kogan for putting this idea in my brain ages ago. Because we often travel together, David Kogan and yeah. Tim Locker. Um, where would you like to go with me? That might be fun to look at through the lenses of this phone. That's more important to me than um, you know delivering lab sanctioned results because of the nature of my content. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, there is something to be said for objective data, a hundred percent. Of course. But, but I think, uh, but I think like, you know, I don't necessarily go by that objective data because to me, it kind of feels artificial. You know, it feels like, you know, it, it, it feels like it's, you know, it's, it's like synthahol versus alcohol, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, to go back on the uh, Star Trek metaphor that we, we've been talking about Star Trek a bunch today off the air. So yeah. just go with it. But to me, yeah. like in, in, in my world, that's kind of the difference is in speaking of which I'm going to open a beer. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, look, I don't think I don't agree that there's artificiality to the process like it is not a real world use case i will say as i think i think what we might agree on it's like sure sure it, it, that kind of testing does eliminate the variables inherent in uh just the other day i was photographing the manhattan skyline and a bird flew into the frame a totally random not easily reproducible event 
and the Galaxy Z Flip 3 processing decided to make that bird have one wing and the bird's body disappeared. <laughs> you know, it was just, it, it entered the frame for a second and it was gone. And that's what the processing did. Right. But, you know, I, I'm not going to claim that as a result, my testing is superior. It's not. It's just sometimes you have random things that roll up. And my objective is really to produce a video that is as close to the truth as I interpret it, but also to have fun in the process. Yeah. And and okay. for, for me, that means not going to the same bar every time. No, it, it means choosing as many different varied destinations as I can and ideally experiencing something new or re-experiencing something that was fun again through the lenses of a very, very new device and trying to hmm. evaluate it in that sense. So it's not scientific, but hopefully it's fun. Interesting. Well, I, I know that my my viewers will uh, very quickly recognize the Streamwood City Hall uh, because that's <laughs> where I go for my nighttime shots because as it had So, like, I had this realization. Um, this was, I think it was while I was doing the iPhone 12 Pro. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had this realization that, you know, I live out in the suburbs of Chicago, half an hour away from anything that that anybody would ever want to go to. Um, so, <laughs> um, like, nighttime in my air- neighborhood is very different than nighttime in, um, I'm going to use a local example, but Wrigleyville, like the area around Wrigley Field, which I know that you have visited once or twice. Um, but anyway, sure. like... And, and the main reason for that is because in the suburbs, they don't like spending money, so they put one streetlight on every corner. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the city, in, in the city of Chicago, there's a streetlight every 100 feet. So you end up getting this, like, ambient light that is, like, practically blinding to someone who lives out in the suburbs. Because yeah. you're, like, you're looking around, and you're like, wow, how could anybody ever take a bad picture out here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because it's all about the lighting. But, like... And so that's why I, I tend to go to the Streamwood City Hall because they have, you know, the lighted the lighted sidewalks and they have overhead lights all over the place. And, you know, they have these lights on until like midnight every night. So I guess that's my tax dollars at work. But <laughs> I also, uh, you know, they also have like, you know, cannons that you can shoot and there's a sculpture garden there. So it's, it's, it's a nice place to go. And I can get, you know, that way I can take the same kind of like somewhere in between you and the lab circumstances where I can I can walk the same path and I can you know hold the phone the same way and I can you know do a dozen phones in that same area and I can kind of compare them against one another so yeah one thing one thing I wanted to uh, touch on when you say you have 18 phones lay, laid out you don't take how many phones do you take with you on a typical? No, photo I'll take, excursion. No, yeah. I mean, obviously not 18. I'll but give you like, an example. The Governor's Island, which I just went to, where I was using the Pixel 5a, because that was the, the brand new one, which where the camera is a major focus of that phone, obviously. Yes. And I had the Flip 3 with it. I had the Fold 3 with it, because I wanted to evaluate them alongside, because mm-hmm. it is important to take a $2,000 phone almost, or an $1,800 phone, and evaluate it in the shadow of a $450 phone. That, spoiler alert, usually does better um <laughs> uh, and then it, it in the same on the same trip i think i rounded that out with the s21 ultra because i knew i was going to be taking long distance shots and i wanted to compare the zoom quality between them oh and an iphone um 12 pro max so really you know the phones that are relevant to the to the coverage 
the phones that are relevant to the coverage, and, yeah, and to, to prospective buyers. You know, it's like yeah. what I, I cannot envision a buyer looking at the Z Flip Three and considering it and saying, "Now, how is this camera going to measure up to that of the, um, you know, Oppo uh, Find X Three, right? LG Wing <laughs> or Oppo right. Reno, whatever." It's like, right. eh, you know, you kind of have to just use your brain a little bit, add some context in an intelligent way. Uh, that that's what I try to do every time. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't always work out, but it's usually <laughs> about a four or five phone spread on those comparisons. Gotcha. So do you have any type of like environments that you typically try to hunt down when you're in during the, or does it just happen to be where you happen to be? Yeah. And, I mean, well, again, it's, you know, it's dependent on the device too, right? If it's a pixel, I will try and I failed at this, frankly, with the Pixel 5a, but it wasn't a real review. It was just, a, frankly, a rush job, which I said in the video. Um, right. If it's a Pixel, I'll try and get an astrophotography shot. Yeah. If it's a Sony Xperia, um, I will try my best to use it. You've, I will try my best to evaluate the strengths that Sony is advertising with that camera. Now, again, so don't always succeed. Um, right. But yeah, it's it's contextually relevant. Like I want to cover that Leica lights, lights, lights. This is the second podcast, and I haven't looked up how to pronounce lights. Um, <laughs> if the E is before the I, and it's a German word, it's lights. So lights uh, yeah. one. I want to take that to City Island, which is a an island off the Bronx in New York, because I want to see what that looks like through some Leica inspired color filters. I want to see what these abandoned boat yards and seafood restaurants look like, because that to me is. I, I, I'm just curious, and I think a lot of people would be curious, what what does it mean to have the grittiness, the simulated grittiness of film, simulated film, uh, reflect <laughs> the reality, the gritty reality of a place? And that's not an insult. I love City Island, but, it, you know, it's a, it's a place that is not spotless in a way that I find very appealing. So, you know, it, it really is a case-by-case thing. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, I very much appreciate you joining me to pull back the curtain on this little aspect of being a reviewer, and I hope that we can have you on again and pull back the curtain a little bit more sometime. I look forward to that. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Michael Fisher for coming on and chatting about photography and camera testing. He's been doing this for a while, folks. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all the hard work he does behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.